I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On, where we go deeper with the author of an important op-ed. This week, a view into what's driving the increase in violent crime we're seeing across the country. Murders spiked last year and have continued to increase through 2021. Murder stats have stories to tell. Some can mislead. Some hold our thorniest truths. A disturbing factor is the pure, irrational rage that seems increasingly to drive these grim numbers. That's Liz Thompson reading from her op-ed. She's a retired supervisor of the Albuquerque Police Department's Homicide Unit. She recently came back to the department as a cold case investigator. I wanted to talk with Sergeant Thompson about what she calls the rage factor, and also about a personal quest she has to honor victims of murder. Here's our conversation. Just to start, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about yourself. You came to this work later in life. What made you want to join the Albuquerque Police Department at the age of 40? Well, I had always wanted to be a cop. I wanted to be the good guy. And growing up, um, when I did, I didn't think that I could become a cop. I thought I was, you know, I was a girl. And then as I grew older, I thought I was too old. But I decided I, I needed a change in career at that time in my life. And I sought out the police department and they said, no, we don't have an age restriction. You just need to pass all of the tests, physical, academic, and psychological. So I went for it. And I actually turned 40 while I was in the police academy. And you rose through the ranks, eventually heading up the homicide unit. My first beat in journalism was covering police. And so I have enormous respect for homicide detectives. I know how hard the job is and how important it is and how tough an assignment it is. What did you take away from that experience? I guess you ran the unit for about five years. I think what's important today as we see these numbers going up, 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 something that I always, always felt as we investigated murders was that you know, as a community, we weren't always feeling bad for somebody who got murdered and their family. You know, there'd be high-profile cases or cases with children, and they'd get a lot of attention, and they would get visits from politicians and police administrators, and then there'd be the other families that were just left out. And this always really bothered me. I felt that everybody deserves justice. And I made sure that my detectives knew that that was the foundation that we were doing investigations based on that, that every single murder was a tragedy and that it deserved to be thoroughly investigated and that we answer as many questions for the family as possible you know, the most important question is who did this and why and bring them to justice. You kept a list of names 
the names of every murder victim. Why was that ritual so important to you? Well, it started out just being important for record keeping. And, you know, I needed a way to always have at my fingertips where we were in regards to the numbers. And it just was easy for me to always have a notepad that had a running list. Well, as I did that, it became this ritual that became very symbolic for me. I felt for these victims and their families, and they really did care. So it developed into that every time we got called out to another murder, and I recorded that person's uh, the date of their death, their name, how they died. It really would strike me each time that it was symbolic. They were no longer going to write their, their name. I had taken that on, written their name, and now taking on that responsibility to find their killer and bring them to justice. And I knew as the years went by that I had to do something with this list to try to somehow rectify those who had not been recognized and their lives had not been acknowledged and their families had not been acknowledged. And as I got closer and closer to retirement, I thought, okay, I've got to do something with this list. I knew it had to be something that gave each person their recognition equally. So how did you end up paying homage to those 240 victims? Well, after retirement, I had a friend who had asked me to do the Camino de Santiago in Spain, and we got to talking, and as we were planning to do that, we had to come up with how far are we going to walk. The Camino de Santiago is an ancient pilgrimage route across the Iberian Peninsula. Yes. For some, it's a religious pilgrimage. For some, it's a hike. Historically, for some, it's their way to escort the souls of their loved ones to the edge of the earth. I loved that symbolism. I loved the idea. And so I talked to my friend and I said, well, we're going to be walking about 200 miles and I have about 200 names on my list and I would like to escort them to the edge of the earth. Robert Sanchez. Guadalupe Morales. Macayo Westfall. Julio Apodaca. You had a beautiful sentence in your piece where you said, these people had been erased by criminals, but I wanted them to be recalled in beautiful, unexpected places. And I just thought that was very touching. Christine Atencio. Sylvia Lobato. Shifting to the home front, back to the U.S., the murder rate here soared last year 
we got the FBI statistics recently, which confirmed what we have anecdotally known from cities across the country. Uh, and you used to report those statistics to the feds. The murder rate increased 30% last year. What's going on? What do you believe is behind this spike in killings? Well, to understand it, I need to back up a little bit. So I took over the homicide unit in 2012. And part of supervising the homicide unit is not only investigating side by side with the detectives, but it's being responsible for the collection of all this data. And um, Albuquerque Police is one of the uh, major city uh, police departments that does report their data to the FBI. So I'm a, a big nerd. I like looking at data and trying to figure out what it's telling us. And in 2012, um, I reported the data. And then I started to really pay attention to the trends that I was seeing. And actually, homicides in Albuquerque between 2012 and 2014 went down. And so I was getting the question, why are they going down? And at the time, the trend that I noticed is that we were still having a lot of people being, being shot and or stabbed, but Albuquerque has our only level one trauma center in the state. And what I was noticing is that we were still having a lot of really serious injuries, but these people were being saved. Their lives were being saved by UNM Hospital. In 2014, we only had 30 murders that year. In subsequent years, it started ticking up and ticking up. And I started noticing other trends. I started noticing that we were having a, a greater percentage of the murders being committed with firearms. We were having a greater percentage of the murders being committed over disputes that you would normally not think of as a reason to shoot somebody. And I started really, really noticing this in 16 and 17. It was alarming. The percentage of murders being committed with firearms had gone from about a third of all murders committed in Albuquerque to about three quarters. And the more alarming trend to me was that we were having murders committed over things that just seemed ridiculous. A car wash stall over stolen weed, just so many absurd things that people were killing each other over. And this, to me, was more alarming. And I just started to notice also the atmosphere just in the city and in the country, the rage factor. It just seemed to be escalating you could look at each case and almost pinpoint the rage. Here in D.C., I was coming back from a, a colleague's house a few weeks ago and trying to park in my neighborhood on a Friday night and was parallel parking into an empty spot on the street legally. And these guys pulled up right behind and got out and said, we're going to shoot you unless you have uh, give us this parking spot. And it was four young men in this car, and it was just totally crazy. Uh, and 
I've never experienced that in all my years here in Washington. And we obviously have a spike here, uh, you know, and, and the editorial board recently invited the DC police chief in to, to talk with us. And he kind of also was highlighting some of these basically rage killings that are out there. So it's, it's very scary. Obviously, there have been murders over petty inane disputes in the past, but it certainly is getting worse. I'm interested in your thoughts on why the rage factor is getting worse. Well, first, let me say I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I think that there's a lot of Americans out there that can say, yeah, that happened to me too. And it it didn't used to happen. In social life in America, it seemed that empathy is either lacking or it's just not there at all. And I think that this is something that's important in so many different professions, including policing. This would improve the relationship between police and the community in general, is that if everybody showed more empathy and compassion. And, you know, it may sound corny, it may sound simplistic, but again, if you really delve down and drill down into these cases and to the details of these cases, I was seeing that people were feeling wronged. They were feeling wronged by their community, by their families, by their friends. They were not acknowledged for any pain and suffering that they, that they had gone through. And I, I think it's epidemic. I was a hostage negotiator for a number of years for the Albuquerque Police Department, and I always said that the takeaway I took from that experience was that when I would be trying to talk someone out of being barricaded or holding hostages, the common thread was always that they had not been acknowledged by by someone or by society for what they had been through, their accomplishments or their troubled lives. We'll be right back after a short break. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. You write, killers generally feel powerless over their circumstances. Having lost control over their lives, they may commit violence in an attempt to regain a semblance of it. And the ultimate exercise of control over life is taking someone else's. And and obviously that's not to excuse killing, of course, but it is eye-opening, that insight. I absolutely do want to clarify that that is something that I've observed when we got to talking and interviewing someone who had killed someone else, they often expressed, again, how they had been wronged by this person. In domestic violence situations, an abuser feels that they need to have power and control over their victim. And 
sometimes, sadly, tragically, the control that they exercise is taking that person's life. When I see this in the media and in social media and just in these common threads of these cases, you know, it occurs to me, what are we teaching our kids? Kids need to learn empathy. They also need to learn that there are productive ways to cope with these stresses and these um, situations where you feel like you've been cheated or you've been wronged or somebody has something that, that you want. There are much better ways to resolve these things. And I think it's really, really dangerous to continue this track that we seem to be on in this country of rewarding a lack of empathy and... Um, Rage, bullying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. You write in your op-ed that the pandemic has no doubt exacerbated that sense of helplessness. Can you connect the dots here? How does the sense of helplessness so many people are feeling amid the pandemic worsen all these dynamics that we've been talking about? Well, I think that some of the stressors that we normally see in homicide statistics, poverty, economic issues, domestic violence issues, things like that, I think were exacerbated because there was so much unknown, so much uncertainty, so much that was out of anyone's control. It wasn't just on a personal level. It's that you know, even our our leaders, um, whether it be our government or our, our faith community, everyone was going through the same thing of not knowing what the future held, not knowing how to make this stop or how to control it. And I, I think that also when you have people who are not used to being together in close spaces, without relief or without um, ways to sort of blow off steam, if you will. I think that just, again, it leads you down a path. And if, if you don't have those coping skills in place already, and frankly, who did for the pandemic? I, I don't feel I was prepared for the pandemic. And if I had these stressors already in place, of not being sure about my job or not being sure about my relationship or not being sure where my next uh, money was coming from. It just seems to me that it only exacerbated those stressors and made them more prominent in everyone's mind. And I also think that it tends to create this blaming and that is something also when somebody feels that they've been wronged and we're all feeling like this is a very bad situation, a very uncomfortable situation that we have no control over, and we've got to have somebody to blame. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, I noticed just watching the dialogue in the country and society is that the volume just goes from zero to 100. And you have a great line that jumped out at me, which is death threats replace debate inch by inch rage becomes the norm. And in that poisonous atmosphere, tragedies are inevitable. That is a point that I really wanted to get across in the op-ed. 
And that is that now we are to the point where this is inevitable. The numbers will go up. We can't keep doing what we're doing. It's not working. These tragedies are inevitable with the temperature being so high and the rage factor being so prominent. Now, you've returned to the department as a civilian to work on cold cases. Uh, I am happy to hear that. My godfather lives in Albuquerque, so it gives me peace of mind. Uh, What's it like to be in policing right now compared to when you got in in 1999? Obviously, you know, police have been a target of a lot of protests last year. Uh, you know, there's uh, the rising crime. Ostensibly, some of these cold cases you're working on are from your your previous stint as the the head of the homicide unit. What is it like to be back on the inside? It's great to be back. We are working on some cases from when I was with the department, but we're also working on cases that are even 30 and 40 years old hoping to utilize new technologies and be able to address things that they couldn't address 20, 30 years ago to to bring some closure to these cases. As far as how does it feel as a police officer, so I'm not back as a cop. I'm really there to bring my expertise to these cold cases. But I can tell you that the stress of lack of resources, of the reforms that are needed and are taking place, but that's a process and going through that process. Those stressors were already there and they just have been exacerbated by the pandemic and the rage factor that I see. Cops are are experiencing those those same stressors and those, those same things in their jobs. It, you know, it's it's a hard job. Yeah, cops need to be trained using empathy as a tool. I have believed that throughout my whole career. But it works both ways. And again, I'm not saying empathy is a as an excuse for anyone's bad behavior. We are all in this together. We need to look at each other with a little less anger and tone it down, and, you know, maybe there's a reason somebody cut you off in traffic. To close this out, you write, there are plenty of solutions perennially offered for combating the rise in violent crime. Improved education, more opportunity, better social services. But those are big projects that would take years or decades to have an impact. You were just speaking to it a little bit, but final thought, at an individual level, what can we do to combat this increase in violent crime? Well, I think these random acts of kindness, it's important. Maybe try it. And I think taking a stand, each of us, when we see somebody raging at someone else, but not condoning it, not perpetuating it, um, if you see it out in public getting the authorities involved or getting an authority figure involved, I think everybody should sort of walk through life. Is this how I want my kids to learn to be in the world? 
and to be that example, you know, lead by example. I think we all need to look in the mirror and say, are we doing that? Are we, are we communicating with our friends, our family, our neighbors, our colleagues in a way that I'm really hearing what they're saying and making sure that you are living that life that you can say, that's how I want my kids to treat other people. Well, thank you, Sergeant Thompson, for taking the time to talk with us and for writing your excellent op-ed. Thank you. Appreciate it. There have been more than 100 homicides in Albuquerque so far this year. At this point last November, the number was 65. This trend continues to play out across the country. We need to find the killers, honor the victims, and figure out how to bend this curve. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Dara Hirsch. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can find the link to Liz Thompson's op-ed and her website in our show notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another episode because there's always more to say. <laughs>